Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the forensic psych case of the Sauter family disappearance. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Downeast region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. How are you doing, Dr. Scott? Great. We had a fantastic live event. Thank you for coordinating the bulk of that. It was really great. We had 10 of our Patreons show up and it was a very nice holiday meeting with our listeners and and colleagues and friends. It's nice. Yes, it's nice. I think we've been doing this, what, three or four years and to see the same faces every year, literally from around the world. That Bridget, she just kills it at the games. Yeah, I'm telling you. (laughs) Bridget's operating on another level. (laughs) She really is. She really is. We even had new babies that weren't here since last year joining us. It was, it, it's so fun. It feels like a little family coming well, together. Clear, again. Clearly not affected by baby brain at all because she smoked all of us in the competition. again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's see. So we have this week, we're just right on schedule. Next week, we'll have the documentary review for you. And then we'll be starting out in 2024. We will see what the new year brings. But with that, so today we don't really have a true forensic psych topic, if you will, which we usually do. We wanted to change it up for Christmas. We have definitely more of a story to share with you today, a super weird mystery, but we will touch on some concepts around grief and specifically grief suffered by parents at the end of this. So 
I know it's not like a light Christmas topic. Certainly take some care with that and we'll get into the trigger warnings in a minute. But first, do you want to remind us of our last episode? Yes. Last week, we released one of our monthly vintage episodes. It was episode 167, the LA Times bombing. And before midnight on October 1st, 1910, a serial bomber crept through the dark streets of LA, placing three bombs at strategic locations for the purpose of destroying and disrupting the anti-union stances of the journalism giant, the LA Times. We cover the social and cultural history of the time, as well as the crime and trial of those responsible for this early act of terrorism. Additionally, we touch on the role radicalization plays in such terror attacks. Yes. All right. So today I'm just going to do trigger warnings at the top. We're going to be talking about murder. We're going to be talking about gun violence. Suicide is definitely mentioned. And then death of children and then death by fire. So we have a lot wrapped up into this story. I would want to add... Yeah. Potential kidnapping. There's a lot of things that are mysterious Mm -hmm. about this particular crime. And there definitely is an indication that a crime took place. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into it. Christmas is a time that many of us look forward to all year with its feelings of gratitude and closeness with loved ones. But we also know that the holidays can evoke some uncomfortable and lonely feelings for others not to mention the immense stress that comes with the pressures we put on ourselves during the holiday season. And yet for others, Christmas is linked to tragedies that are so rare, it completely rips the joy out of any holiday out of their lives forever, leaving the rest of us to look on in horror. You, of course, have the JonBenet Ramsey murder, probably the most intertwined with Christmas, with crime scene photos of the home, candy canes lining the front walkway. And then you have lesser known but incredibly tragic cases like the 2008 Covina Christmas Eve massacre that occurred in Covina, California, just miles from where I live. The ex-husband of the resident's adult daughter in that case arrived at a Christmas Eve celebration dressed as Santa Claus, shooting nine people to death and then setting the house on fire before turning the gun on himself. But today we're going to get into a case that occurs around the holidays rather than giving you a clinical concept. It's a little break from the research deep dive we normally do in these forensic psych episodes. Yes, consider this maybe even just an old-fashioned unsolved mystery holiday episode. Yeah, this is a really fascinating one with some points that I we're going to spontaneously discuss at the end of the episode. But we're going to start off with the story of Giorgio Sidhu, later known as George Soder. He was born in Tula, Sardinia in 1895 and at the age of 13 in 1908. He immigrated to the United States, accompanied by an older brother who promptly returned to Italy upon reaching Ellis Island, leaving George to navigate his new life independently. Initially finding employment on the Pennsylvania Railroads, George later relocated to Smithers, West Virginia, where his intelligence and ambition became evident, starting as a driver for local transport, and then he eventually established his own trucking company, initially involved in transporting construction dirt and later expanding to handle freight and coal. In Smithers, George's life took a significant turn when he entered the Music Box store, where he met Jenny Cipriani, the daughter of the store owners. Jenny, an Italian immigrant herself who arrived in the U.S. at the age of three, became George's wife. The couple went on to have 10 children between 1923 and 1943, settling in Fayetteville, West Virginia, an Appalachian town boasting a small yet vibrant Italian immigrant community. Despite George being known for his strong opinions on various matters, ranging from business to current events and politics, he strangely refrained from ever discussing his youth 
and the events that led him to leave Italy. On the eve of Christmas in 1945, George and Jenny Sauter, along with nine of their 10 children, one son, he was grown, he was away in the army. They all retired for the night. At approximately 1 a.m., a fire erupted. George, Jenny, and four of their children managed to escape, but the whereabouts of the other five remained a mystery. George valiantly attempted to rescue them, breaking a window to re-enter the engulfed house and sustaining a large gash on his arm in the process. The smoke and flames had swept through the entire lower floor, including the living rooms and dining rooms, kitchen, office, and the bedroom shared by George and Jenny. Surveying the situation frantically, George realized that two-year-old Sylvia in her crib in their bedroom was safe outside. 17-year-old Marion and their two sons, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr. had also escaped from the upstairs bedroom they shared. Their hair singed during their hurried exit. The grim realization hit George that Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny and Betty might still be inside, likely seeking refuge in two bedrooms at either end of the hallway, separated by a staircase, now consumed by flames. In a desperate attempt to reach them through the upstairs windows, George found the ladder, usually propped against the house, strangely missing. Quickly thinking on his feet, he decided to use one of his coal trucks as a makeshift platform to reach the windows. However, despite functioning perfectly the day before, neither truck would start. In the midst of the crisis, George searched for alternatives, attempting to gather water from a rain barrel, only to find it frozen solid. The urgency then intensified as five of his children remained trapped within the billowing smoke and flames. George's daughter, Marion, rushed to a neighbor's house to contact the Fayetteville Fire Department, but received no response from the operator. Frustrated, a neighbor witnessed the blaze, made a call from a nearby tavern, yet once again, no operator responded. Growing exasperated, the neighbor drove into town and located Fire Chief F.J. Morris, who activated Fayetteville's fire alarm system using a phone tree approach. Although the fire department was only two and a half miles away, they didn't arrive until 8 a.m., by which time the Sodders' home had been reduced to a smoldering heap of ash. George and Jenny assumed the worst, presuming that five of their children had perished. However, a brief search on Christmas Day yielded no remains on the grounds. Chief Morris speculated that the fire's intensity could have cremated the bodies entirely. A state police inspector attributed the fire to faulty wiring, and George covered the basement with five feet of dirt, intending to preserve it as a memorial. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year, citing fire or suffocation as the cause. However, the Sodders start entertaining the possibility that their children actually might still be alive. They adorn the area where their home once stood with flowers and began piecing together a sequence of peculiar events leading up to the fire. Several months earlier in the fall, a stranger had appeared at their home inquiring about hauling work. This person wandered to the back of the house, pointed to two separate fuse boxes, and ominously predicted, this is going to cause a fire someday. George found this strange, especially considering the recent inspection by the local power company, which had deemed the wiring in excellent condition. In following weeks, another individual attempted to sell the family life insurance and grew hostile when George declined, issuing a menacing warning about the house going up in smoke and the destruction of their children. The elder Sauter sons also remembered an unusual occurrence just before Christmas, a man parked along U.S. Highway 21, attentively observing the younger children returning home from school. When recalling events on the night of the fire, Jenny recalled that around 1230, after the children had opened presents and everyone had retired to bed, the tranquility of the house was shattered by a sharp, 
loud bang on the roof, followed by a rolling noise. Jenny also reported that at some point during the night, she rushed to answer a phone call with an unfamiliar female voice asking for an unfamiliar name amidst raucous laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Jenny dismissed the caller, stating that they had the wrong number, and then returned to bed. On tiptoeing back, she observed that all of the downstairs lights were still on, the curtains open, and the front door was unlocked. Assuming that the other children were upstairs, in bed with Marion asleep on the living room sofa, Jenny secured the house by turning off the lights, closing the curtains, locking the door, and then returning to her room. As she began to doze, Jenny was abruptly awakened an hour later by a heavy smoke infiltrating her room. Bewildered by the apparent absence of any remains, bone, flesh, or otherwise from the five children who supposedly perished in the fire, Jenny conducted a personal experiment later. She burned animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones, to test if the fire would consume them. Each time, she was left with a pile of charred bones. Aware that identifiable remnants of various household appliances were found in the burned-out basement, Jenny consulted an employee at a crematorium who informed her that bones persist after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Remarkably, their house had been destroyed in just 45 minutes. So the compilation of peculiar incidents continued to expand. A telephone repairman informed the Sodders that their lines seemed to have been deliberately cut, not burned. This realization raised some questions. If the fire resulted from faulty wiring, as officially reported, the power should have been cut. So how do they explain the illuminated downstairs? A witness surfaced recounting that he observed a man at the fire scene absconding with a block and tackle commonly used for removing car engines. Could this have been the cause behind George's trucks refusing to start? During a family visit to the site, Sylvia discovered a hard rubber object in the yard, prompting Jenny to recall the audible thud on the roof and then the subsequent rolling sound. George speculated that it might be a napalm pineapple bomb akin to those used in warfare. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia... Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. 
Soon, reports of sightings added another layer of intrigue to this mystery. A woman asserted that she saw the missing children peering from a passing car during the fire. Another woman, operating a tourist shop between Fayetteville and Charleston, about 50 miles west, claimed to have seen the children the morning after the fire, even serving them breakfast. She noted a car with Florida license plates at the tourist court. Additionally, a woman at the Charleston Hotel recognized the children's photos in a newspaper, insisting she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. According to her statement, the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. However, attempts to engage with the children were met with hostility from the men, prompting their departure early the next morning. In 1947, George and Jenny reached out to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, receiving a reply from J. Edgar Hoover himself, stating that the matter appeared to be a local matter and outside the Bureau's investigative jurisdiction. Although Hoover's agents offered assistance with local permission, the Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments declined the offer. Subsequently, the Sauters enlisted the help of a private investigator, C. Tinsley, who uncovered a concerning connection. The insurance salesman who had threatened George was a member of the coroner's jury that ruled the fire as accidental. Tinsley also learned a peculiar story from a Fayetteville minister regarding F.J. Morris, the fire chief. Despite Morris publicly stating that no remains were found, he allegedly confided that he had discovered a heart in the ashes, which he concealed inside a dynamite box and buried at the scene. Tinsley successfully convinced Morris to reveal the location of this heart. Together, they unearthed the box and promptly took it to a local funeral director who examined this organ and determined it to be a beef liver unscathed by the fire. Subsequently, rumors circulated that the fire chief had informed others that the contents of the box were not discovered in the fire. Instead, he allegedly buried the beef liver in the rubble with the hope that finding any remains would just satisfy the family enough to halt the investigation. Over the ensuing years, tips and leads continued to surface. George came across a newspaper photo of school children in New York City, firmly believing that one of them was his daughter, Betty. He journeyed to Manhattan to locate the child, but her parents refused to engage with him. In August 1949, the Sodders decided to launch a renewed search at the fire scene, enlisting the expertise of a Washington, D.C. pathologist, Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was meticulous, revealing various small objects such as damaged coins, a partially burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued a report stating that the human bones comprised four lumbar vertebrae from one individual. The report highlighted unusual skeletal maturation, indicating an age at death of 16 or 17 years, potentially extending the age to 22. Despite the expected fusion at age 23, the centra were still unfused. Even more notable was the fact that the vertebrae displayed no signs of exposure to fire. The report found it peculiar that only four vertebrae were discovered during the purportedly careful basement excavation, considering the house had burned for only about a half an hour. The conclusion suggested that the bones were likely present in the dirt George used to fill the basement for the memorial. Subsequently, two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston led Governor Oki L. Patterson and the state police superintendent W.E. Burchett to declare the Sodder search as hopeless and closed the case. Unyielding in their quest for answers, George and Jenny erected a billboard along Route 16 and distributed flyers, initially offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to their children's recovery. This reward was later increased to $10,000. Despite receiving a letter from a woman in St. Louis claiming that Martha was in a convent there and other tips from Texas and Florida, George traveled extensively to investigate each lead, always returning home without conclusive answers. 
1968, over two decades after the tragic fire, Jenny retrieved the mail and discovered an envelope addressed solely to her. Postmarked in Kentucky with no return address, it contained a photo of a man in his mid-20s. On the reverse side, a cryptic handwritten note read, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. And then it says, I L boys. So I don't know what that's actually supposed to read, but then it has a series of numbers, A90132 or 35. The resemblance to their son, Louis, who was nine at the time of the fire, was undeniable. Beyond the visual similarities in dark curly hair and dark brown eyes, they shared the same straight, strong nose and an upward tilt of the left eyebrow. Once again, the Sodders enlisted a private detective and sent him to Kentucky, but they never received any further communication. Fearing potential harm to their son, they refrained from publishing the letter or divulging the town's name on the postmark. Instead, they updated the billboard with Louis's new image and hung an enlarged version over their fireplace. In an interview, George expressed the urgency of their quest, stating, Time is running out for us, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. George passed away in 1968, still hopeful for a breakthrough. Jenny, mourning in black since the fire, continued to do so until her death in 1989, erecting a fence around her property and adding more and more layers to her home, creating distance from the outside world. The billboard eventually came down. The Sodder children and grandchildren persisted in the investigation, formulating their own theories. Some speculated that the local mafia tried to recruit Louis and upon his refusal, attempted extortion. Another popular theory suggests that George Sauter, a vocal critic of the notorious Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, may have rubbed some Italian immigrants the wrong way due to his outspoken views. It's plausible, given that not all supporters of fascist regimes are known for their friendliness. The puzzling aspect is why the Sauter family, seemingly ordinary, would be singled out for kidnapping just because George expressed strong opinions against Mussolini. The connection between his criticisms and the abduction remains unclear. Moreover, multiple sources emphasize the Sauter's standing as one of the most respected middle-class families, indicating no evidence of any wrongdoing on their part. Others believe the children were kidnapped by someone familiar, entering through the unlocked front door, informing them about the fire, and offering safety. One theory is that the kidnappers transported the children back to Italy. The fate of the children, whether they survived that night or lived for decades, remained uncertain. Sylvia, the youngest and last surviving Sauter child at age 69, rejects the belief that her siblings perished in the fire. She occasionally explores crime sleuthing websites, engaging with those intrigued by her family's enduring mystery. Her earliest memories are of that fateful night in 1945, when she was just two years old. Memories that are etched with the sight of her bleeding father, the cacophony of the screams, and the inexplicable tragedy that continues to elude understanding. Wow. This is certainly strange. So much strangeness about <laughs> it. And even Reddit, Reddit is an interesting hole to go down about this yeah. because there are some really outlandish theories that just seem a little bit too strange. Even just in what the, the tip of the iceberg that we're sharing today, one of the things that I was struck most by in the one of the paragraphs that you generated was about the anger that the life insurance salesman experienced right? and immediately i thought oh he was set up to go 
create uh, an implication of their murder. Oh, we're going to interesting that your house burned down with all these people dying and you just bought life insurance policies for them. That seems like a total attempt at a setup. Let's forget all of the wild theories and kind of the things that in hindsight seem weird and just go back to what you have, right? You have five of these kids that did not make it, the youngest kids. Right, the youngest. And which is weird in and of itself, unless they were just all in one portion of the home. But you have a fire and you have five people missing. But I don't know the fire science behind this and not taken from what we wrote because we didn't include a whole lot about fire science. But from what very little I know, there just had to have been some remains with it only burning from about 30 to 45 minutes. Right. That's just the basic science. There's there, there wasn't enough of any kind of accelerators there for it to burn that hot. It's very sad and interesting. I would say your point is very well taken about the youngest children are the ones that disappear Yeah. because the youngest ones are going to have more plastic memories, right? Yep. So yep. you can create a completely different identity for children and within, totally. you know, of children from birth to age two or three, and within a few years, they may not remember anything. Yeah. 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 If Jenny's memory is correct and she heard something tossed on the roof and then rolling down, come on, that's got to be the arson right there. And, and also the, the sabotage. And the fuse box that some drifter comes through who has no connection to the rest of the city. And he's yeah. like, hey, that's dangerous. And it was just cleared by someone right. else. You know, an, another chance at putting a potential reason out there for the fire happening. Yeah. But you, I think the story illustrates really just how tortured these poor parents are, not having a conclusive answer either way. And towards the end, we're desperately saying, if they perished in the fire, fine, but we have to be convinced of that. Right. And because... there's just not, there's not enough there to convince us. No. Even even a superficial re- reading like this, there's just not enough there. No, there isn't. And we know from other cases that we've covered when children and adults have gone missing, just the uniqueness of that unresolve, unlike when you do find remains and you realize that your loved one has passed, it's unrelenting, tragic grief. So Absolutely. I thought at the end here, we would just touch on Specifically, I know we've talked about grief in the past, but really what it looks like for parents who grieve the death of a child. And again, this is the story is even beyond that, right? It's not even grieving the death of their children. And I wonder if to some extent at the end of their life, they had to wrap their heads around that for their own sake. But quickly, like at the top, I just want to talk about complicated grief because we've talked about this before. So the most obvious example of something like that would be somebody dies of natural causes after living a long life, or even if there's an illness towards the end of life and it's expected, right? It feels like the natural way in which we expect people to pass in our lives. We have been dealing with grief as long as we have been around. (laughs) When we have a situation where it is unexpected or tragic, It's what we call a complicated death. And then what follows that is complicated grief. So a complicated death would be death by suicide, the death of a child, death in an accidental, unexpected, tragic way. Violence is also considered part of that makeup, right? Absolutely. Yes. So 
those are moments where it feels unnatural. It's just the way to put it. It's very surreal afterwards. It's not this almost like preemptive process of grief you go for. Grief just hits you out of the blue. And so that that is much different and has a much different path. Even though, again, our minds and our bodies know what to do, it feels a little bit more disrupted to get along that journey and that path of grieving for that loved one. So this certainly falls into that category when we talk about the death of children, probably in the most extreme way when we're talking about complicated grief. We know that the parents of children and adolescents who die are found to experience a really broad range of difficult mental and physical symptoms. And like you were talking about, and any audience member can imagine, these individuals will report depressed feelings accompanied by intense feelings of sadness, despair, helplessness, loneliness, abandonment, and sometimes even a wish to die themselves. That's only just in the children as they try and establish understanding. The physical symptoms that adults report experience include insomnia or loss of appetite, as well as confusion, inability to concentrate, and obsessive and ruminative thinking. They've also been known to have extreme feelings of vulnerability, anxiety, panic, and hypervigilance, which is similar and overlapping with trauma symptoms. Yeah, this certainly counts as both complicated grief and a traumatic experience. Absolutely. And as far as emotionality goes, there's a wide spectrum, but grieving parents agree that anger is a part of the normal reaction to the loss of their child. This may be expressed as intense rage or maybe just as chronic irritation and frustration. Generally, it's directed at the people closest to them, the spouse, at the other family members, at the professional staff, if any of them are involved, at God, at fate, or it's even been reported at the dead child, just wherever there's an outlet for this anger to be channeled. Because there needs to be an outlet, right? Yeah. It's just some people either are not aware of where that anger needs to go, or they don't know how to get the guidance to channel it. Yeah. And anger can even be directed at the self, creating feelings of self-hatred, shame, worthlessness, and depending on the circumstances in which the child died, intense guilt that just ends up perpetuating this complex type of grief. I think a lot of this comes down to wiring, certainly for survival and who we are as humans. It goes across also many species that are here on all parents have dreams about their children's futures. And because children take on this enormous symbolic importance in terms of what the parents believe their legacy to be and their hope for the future, when a child dies, all of that is just completely shattered. So we're talking about the death of potential. We're talking about the death of a possibility of a future that seems integral to the intensity of many parents' responses that they're probably unaware of. Like they're not yeah. actively thinking about these things, but it, that's how it hits them. And research shows that this is more of a focus for fathers rather than mothers because mothers focus more on the time that they spent with the child already. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. Parents who have lost children go on to report that their grief continues throughout their lives. And many times they'll explain it like this. It gets different. It does not get better, which I've heard over and mm -hmm. over again. And there are a lot of studies that have followed parents for many years after their child's death. And the findings continue to support the concept that the parents' preoccupation with the loss of children lasts across the life cycle, even 
going so far as to end some of the parents' relationships with each other. And many times yeah. there's very yeah. high rate of divorce in situations like this. One researcher went on to refer to what they call the amputation metaphor. And that's basically this vivid sense for a parent of this permanent loss of a part of themselves that they can adapt to, but it's not going to grow back. And of course, the loss of a sibling can have incredibly profound and lasting impact on the surviving brothers and sisters as well. The effects of a child's death will just continue to reverberate throughout the extended family, and it creates a complex emotional landscape for the kids left behind. Grieving children will experience many of the same emotions as their parents, including what we mentioned before, profound sadness and depression, confusion, guilt, and even anger. But sadly, without the adult coping skills that their parents are attempting to use. So maybe the parent skills are not the greatest, but at least they've got some. Mm -hmm. Kids rarely have these developed skills, especially for a really complex emotional experience like confusion. Yes. Parents can sometimes place confusion in their realm of understanding. Children really have a problem with this. And then this void of emotional understanding and situations leave an opening for the surviving sibling psyche to generate possibly incorrect assumptions about the family dynamic and life in general. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnum Town. Varnum Town is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. 
It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Yeah, the dynamics within the sibling relationships can shift as the absence of one family member alters the entire family structure. And siblings may grapple with feelings of isolation or loneliness as the shared experiences and connections they once had are really changed forever. The loss also has the potential to shape their perspectives on life, mortality, and relationships, influencing their emotional well-being into adulthood. Providing support and open communication within the family is crucial to help siblings navigate the challenging aftermath of their brother or sister's death and really to foster resilience in the face of such a significant loss. So I pulled a quote from Sigmund Freud, who actually lost his eldest daughter. And here he describes this experience in a letter that he wrote to a friend. Quote, for years, I was prepared for the loss of my sons in war. And now comes that of my daughter. Since I am profoundly irreligious, there is no one I can accuse. And I know there is nowhere to which any complaint should be addressed. The unvarying circle of a soldier's duties and the sweet habit of existence will see to it that things go on as before. Quite deep down, I can trace the feelings of a deep narcissistic hurt that is not to be healed. Close quote. Such a Freudian. It way. is, but it's also very insightful for especially it that is. last bit that he recognizes that for many people, and that's our drive of survival, there's different ways you can perceive it, and people have different belief systems, and science continues to uncover many interesting things as we go along. But he's really spot on. It's that the his legacy was cut short by that expression. His we all whether we are aware of it or not, we all have a link to a desire for a little bit of immortality because mm -hmm. it's built into us for survival. That's how we survive as a species. And when the death of a child is lopped off, like that ends a potentiate that you will not be able to pursue. Right. Very interesting stuff. But because of all the experiences that parents go through after the loss of a child, they tend to resist the idea that they're ever going to recover from their child's death. This is really problematic in family systems because if a parent does not resolve to address their grief and get better, they are laying a pathway for additional trauma for their surviving children down the road. Go through this all the time in family therapy. It's really tough to deliver a message like that when other children, the surviving children need their parents and their parents yeah. just are not able to provide that rather than recovery or resolution. And those terms can suggest what we would call a return to pre-loss functioning. I think that the better term is reconciliation and reconstitution. Those are more appropriate because those terms 
more adequately can reflect the profound changes that take place when a child dies. Parents in these situations insist that even the most successful mourning process results in a permanent transformation after the complicated death of a child, which makes complete sense. And as horrible as an example as it is, it's a good reminder for parents to foster a sense of anticipating the emotional processing needs of their children, no matter what age their children are, because the necessary skills of navigating life don't end with understanding just the material needs of life. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting discussion. I think everyone knows the stages of grief and it's very common to understand how people go through that and to break it down in this way. It is still so complicated. And from those first stages, I've, I had to do a death notification pretty recently and to just see that unfold in front of me, both with an adult. And then when the adult told the children, it's really tough to witness, but David Kessler, who works in this area and is an, a renowned expert, please go listen to his podcast. I forget what it's called, but, um, I think it's on Spotify exclusively, but he says grief needs to be witnessed. You know, we, we need to have others there for us, even if they're not doing anything that they're just there to be with us in our grief. So just interesting to, to take a look at this as we think back on the Sauter family and those parents and then the siblings and then the grandchildren that came after that, you know, there's still Sauters out in the world, not knowing what happened to their ancestors. I just hope with the advancements in DNA that at some point, Maybe the Sodders or a few of the Sodders grandchildren will load their information into 23andMe. Wouldn't that be remarkable? Yeah, that would be so great. And they find a sibling somewhere yeah. or a, a distant cousin that yeah. fits that age range uh, yeah. or had a parent or grandparent that fit that age range. It's amazing yeah. the information that can come back from those tests now to even figure out exactly how far removed they are from mm -hmm. each other. So, yeah, hopefully yeah. that will continue to unreveal, even though unfortunately Jenny and George will never have their answer. Right. Right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed a little bit of a different episode this week. Happy holidays to everyone. We know, and this isn't a, you know, especially a reminder as, as we said at the top that the holidays are not always wonderful reminders of what's going on in life for everyone. And as Scott reminded us all at our Patreon party last night, just to take care of ourselves in the way that we need to. And we extend that to everyone listening today as you go into the holiday, deep into the holiday season, and we'll be almost out of it by the time we, you hear our voices again, but we, we wish you a, a really great season. And I guess anything else, any other words, Scott? I'm just going to pull out a little bit of what I said last night again, and Please. build on that, that holidays are a great opportunity to connect with people for shared intimacy and renewal and appreciation of connections that we have. And that's a wonderful part of it. Sometimes there are forced connections that we have to adhere to for familial reasons, for social reasons, just because you have to physically be somewhere. If you physically have to be somewhere, try not to engage. If it's too overwhelming emotionally, it's okay for you to disengage, detach a little bit. If you can't physically remove yourself from a toxic situation, you know, remember that the toxicity 
comes externally. You don't have to integrate it. So please take care of yourself and let's all look forward to 2024. That's going to be a wild ride changing that last number. (laughs) I'm ready for it. Let's do it. All right, everyone. We will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawlspace Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye folks. <laughs>